0: Uh, you can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we'll be at today. Um, kids, I want to welcome you upstairs. Uh, I know sometimes you're, you're used to being up here on Fifth Sundays, uh, but welcome today, uh, and welcome from here on out. Uh, so we'd love to have you up here. Um, just so everyone's aware as well... Um, there, we're not cutting anything as far as kids' lifetime. Actually, if anything, we're, we're helping our teachers. So we're, we're sparing the logistics of our teachers being downstairs for almost two hours with children, and we're cutting it to a one hour. Uh, so kids, it, hopefully it will be helpful for you. You can talk with parents about the message that you hear. Uh, and yeah, it's, um, I'm hoping it will be helpful for us all going forward. So uh, Matthew 2, uh, chapter... Yeah, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'll go ahead and read it, and we'll read down to verse 12, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump in. This is what God's Word says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose… Lord, as we see in your word Gentiles and pagans coming and seeing and beholding beauty, the beauty that you were, I pray, Lord, that this morning we would be humbled, even though this is a story we've heard before. I pray that it would not be common, but, Lord, we would see the glory and the beauty that it is and Father, we would respond rightly. Give us the grace we need to respond in a manner that is pleasing to you, and help us to do so now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I hope you're taking notes, or I hope you have some, some of the notes in front of you there uh, that'll be helpful for you as you're, as you're walking through this text. And if you remember, we've actually preached this text before uh, it was last year. Uh, it was for the wise men's sermon. Uh, and it, but we looked at it from a really different angle uh, than we are going to be looking at it today. Uh, today, I, I just want you to see the story as it unfolds for us. Uh, and the, this, the story starts with an arrival. If you're taking notes there, an arrival. And it's the announcing of the true king. Now, we've seen, as you're, as you're taking notes there, uh, we've seen Matthew continually saying, the king is here. The king has come. He's going to be born. And now now we jump forward in the story, almost two years, to to where Jesus is a child, a young child, the Son of God, pooping and peeing in his diaper, crying. And then some foreigners come into the land and say, where's him who's been born king of the Jews? Listen to what he says. they say in verse 1 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, in this arrival section, I don't know if you've ever seen like um, a large river that has come together like multiple streams that comes together to, for a large river. I think about like um, uh, the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, there's three rivers that come together, right? There's the Allegheny, the Ohio, and the Yacogheny, right? Yeah, 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 the Yacogheny. You, you have that river, and, and the river is powerful because three massive streams of water are coming together. And if we, if we don't see, though, the three streams that are coming to why this arrival is so important, it's just going to kind of bounce off of us. It doesn't really make any sense. Why, what does it matter that some wise men show up? What does it matter that, that Herod's the king? What where do these things matter? So I want to look at, at, at the, the three streams. So wh- why does this matter? Uh, so, I'm going to look at stream one, which is this, is that the Gentiles recognize the king, the king, that should be king plural, singular, not plural, stream one. Now, the Magi would have liter- likely been a member of pr- a priestly caste in Babylon. If you think about it in the book of Daniel, uh, very similar to the astrologers and the, the, the magi- most as we would call them, the magicians. These men would have been literal magicians in that way. People who have studied the stars, probably even worshiped the stars. And you may think, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter so much that they're coming? Who cares? These wise men would have traveled in a caravan with a large group of people, large enough that all of Jerusalem took notice of it. So I want you to re- remember something. The Gentiles and the Jews hated each other. Especially, here's why the Jews hated the Gentiles so much. The Jews knew that they were God's chosen people. And so anytime you have a situation like that where you have the Jews as God's chosen people, they basically said to the Gentiles, yeah, you guys are kind of like lesser. We're, We're God's chosen people in that way. Not you. But then you have them showing up and saying, hey, where's him who's been born king of the Jews? So they're like, uh, what? <laughs> why are you all here? Who, what, do, what do you all want? Who, oh, you want to worship the king? What are you even talking about? And they completely miss it. But th- I want you to see that why this is important so much. Notice, and actually this, is, this is, brings us to our second stream that's kind of moving in this direction. It's that scripture is fulfilled. So stream one is that the Gentiles recognized him. And that's also important because it, it's, it's a fulfillment of scripture. Psalm Psalm 72, 8 through 11 says this, "'May he have dominion.'" This is talking about the Messiah. "'May he have dominion from sea to sea "'and from from the rivers to the ends of the earth. "'May the desert tribes bow down before him "'and his enemies lick the dust. "'May the kings of Tarshish "'and the coastlands render tribute. "'May kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. "'May all kings fall down before him.'" All nations serve him. So the, the Gentiles are so, it's so important that the Gentiles are showing up, not because the Jews like them, but because there's a, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. The Gentiles are coming and they're recognizing the king's here. And they're recognizing it not just through, hey, someone told us this. Actually, the heavens told us. <laughs> like, we're not here because someone came and told us. Nobody sent us a card and said, hey, Messiah's here. Actually, the heavens sent them a card and said, hey, Messiah's here. So why would they travel that far? I want you to think about, uh, in the book of Daniel, I've been reading through the book of Daniel right now, and it's been really, I've often wondered, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is a man who was taken off into exile, basically a prisoner, taken off into Babylon. And You know, he probably wondered a lot, like, why, why me, why me, why right now? But then you see these men coming, 2,000 years, almost, almost 750 years later, these men show up. And it's actually because of someone like Daniel. These wise men would have likely known, they would have been likely Daniel's great, 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 great descendants. And now they're showing up. And they're like, don't you know? Don't you know Messiah's here? Don't you know he's come? And they probably were following a prophecy. Here's another scripture that was fulfilled. Numbers 24 says this. Now this is on the lips as well of a pagan pagan priest. Listen to what he says. This is Balaam speaking. He would have been a pagan who was trying to curse Israel. And instead of cursing him, he blesses them. And this would have been one of the prophecies they probably came on the heels of. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor... The oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here you have, so the one stream is the Gentiles recognize him. The second stream is is Scripture actually declared it would come. Now, I want you to think about this. I don't know if you've ever seen like an astrological event in the heavens. That's not something that's viewed just for a few people. <laughs> that's viewed by everybody. And no, nobody in Jerusalem even noticed. Have you ever, ever thought about that? This weird stars like hovering in the sky and they're like, Never thought about it, never never considered it, never never did anything. But here comes men from the east that notice it. So that's the second stream. So scripture is fulfilled. Here's the third stream that comes together. Is Herod the false king. So stream one is the Gentiles recognize it. Stream two is the scriptures being fulfilled. And the third stream is kind of the context that's happening in. It's the false king. Now Herod was a very... Oppressive leader. He was, in every sense of the term, he was tyrannical. If you've ever thought of a leader as being tyrannical, Herod's a great example of it. He, he imposed heavy taxes upon the people, and everyone who pays taxes, you know, taxes are very inconvenient. When building projects go up, that means taxes go up. That means less money comes to you. <laughs> that means that uh, there's a sense of oppression that, that he laid upon the people. Herod, one, one uh, church history guy, he said this. He said, he would rather be Herod's pig, which a Jew would not kill, th- than his son, whom Herod would kill. Because Herod was, Herod was just a, a, a tyrant in the fullest extent of that term. He dealt roughly with the people. So if you see in verse 1 when it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, you need to continue to remember in your mind, this guy's a jerk. Not only is this guy a jerk, he's actually sitting on a throne that isn't his. He was was what was considered a half-breed. He was not a a true Jew in that way. So he's sitting over a land that, that isn't his to be ruling. Now the context, now you see why I bring these three streams together. So the Gentiles recognize him, Scripture's being fulfilled, and we have a real jerk who's leading them. Now notice what he says, all these things... They present an overwhelming arrival. So when the wise men show up, it's not just this this manger scene showing up. It's a lot different. And the expectation would be a lot more like, what are you all doing here? Why why are you here again? Why are you here to see him? Listen to what they show up saying, though. They say in verse 2, saying, this is what they said, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?' For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now I want you. To, I want to draw attention to what they say there. They say, "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews?" They don't say, "Where is he who's going to become the King of the Jews?" They say, "Where's the one who's your King?" So you can imagine why the Jews were like, "What? What are you all saying?" So you're saying there's a guy who's been the King's here. What are you talking about? They're saying. Here's the one who's been born. Where's he at? Show us to him. And I don't want you to miss the wonder, the scandal that this is. A group of Gentiles come in, a large horde of Gentiles come in and ask, hey, where's your king? And you're all like, uh, what? What are you talking about? We don't know. And Matthew's trying to show us that God has supernaturally and cosmically brought these Gentiles to worship Jesus. We need to see that God is orchestrating even the cosmos to bring people to worship Jesus. You know, Jesus said at another point, he said, If if the crowds wouldn't cry out, the very stones would cry out. And at Jesus' birth, no one cried out. The shepherds knew. Mary, Joseph knew. No one else knew. So he's going to say, hey, no one no one said anything. I'm going to put a star in the sky, and I'm going to bring pagans to come and tell, hey, the king's been born. Here's the, here's the processional. Here he is. king, King's here. Now notice, so that's the arrival. That leads us to the second scene. Now, obviously, they would have been Concerned. Here's this large horde of people coming and saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, in ancient times, when you say something like that, those are fighting words in a very Western sense. Those, those are like, that's like coming and saying, where, put your dukes up, let's fight. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? That means the king who's reigning, there's someone coming for his throne. Okay, so those are fighting words that creates concern. So it's the concerns. It's the false king's concern. And I would argue also in this section, we don't only see Herod's concern, but we ironically see a picture of every human heart. We see, we see Herod's concern, but we see every, a, a snippet of every human heart in these responses. Now notice what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, When Herod the king heard this. Now, this is what he heard. I'll go back and remind you what he heard. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was deeply troubled. You know why he's deeply troubled? That means someone's gunning for your throne. Hey, hey, king, someone's coming for you. <laughs> this is what he says. And He goes, and assembly, this is what he does then. And assembling, verse 4, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And I want you to notice the first real human heart response to Jesus that we find. And I would call this one ruled by desire. Ruled by desire. Also known as hating the king. Now, I want you to notice as well, verses 3 and 4, no matter how the people or Herod or anyone responded, Jesus is no more or less king based upon their response. I'm fearful that the way we often talk of Jesus' kingship, we speak of him as though receive Jesus and then he becomes king of your life. He is king of your life right now, whether you recognize it or whether you don't. That is a reality that every, that's the reality that China hates. That's the thing that they despise. That's what every person has to reckon with. And the news of these foreigners sounds like the emergence of a new leader from the Jewish people. And what does Herod do? He hates it, he's seething with anger. Herod has murdered his sons and his wife to keep his throne secured. So you can imagine how his news comes across. Hey, there's a new king in town. Yeah, he's, he's going to try to stop it. What does he do? He talks to the experts. He brings them in. He assembles the chief priests and the scribes. And he inquired, hey, where's the Christ going to be born? Just so we're clear on this. And not only does he do that, but he has a plan. We see, jump down to verse 7 and 8. Listen to what his plan is. He, they tell him, hey, he's going to come from Bethlehem of Judea, which is, oh yeah, by the way, your district, <laughs> it's where you're governing, so it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's inconvenient. So the, the Messiah is coming from my district? Oh, what's he do then? That, look down to verse 7 and 8. Then Haran summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained what, from what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him too. And we're all like, yeah, sure. That's what he wants to do, right? We know he not only lies to them, but then notice what happens when they don't come back. Jump down to verse 16 of chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he, he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Now, he was already furious. He was already really, really angry. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod is a monster. Herod is an absolute, tyrannical, disgusting leader. And his jealousy and envy push him to kill off infants in an attempt to protect his throne. And Herod will destroy any possible threat to his throne. And you may think, why would I say that Herod is the first one we should be, think, think of ourselves as? Well, here's why. The same hatred that resided in Herod toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the babies in this area for him to destroy... His, them, so he could guard his throne, is the same embryonic hatred that dwells in each of us. Now, you may say, well, Daniel, I'm not going to go out and destroy a whole village. And I'd say, you're right. You also don't have the kind of power that Herod had. But the same hatred, this, this is very humbling to realize, the same hatred that dwelt in Herod is the same embryonic hatred that dwells in each of us. Listen to Matthew 5. Listen to what Jesus says. You have heard that it is said from those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Brothers and sisters, this is very humbling to realize that anger is the seedbed of murder. Murder. It's the embryonic seedbed that that is exactly like what we see from Herod here. Herod was building his little tiny kingdom. Now, his his little kingdom was a lot bigger than mine and your kingdom get. Our kingdom looks like our house. (laughs) Maybe it's our job. Whatever our little kingdom looks like, it's a lot different than Herod's. But it's really not any different. And what we realize is that Jesus is still king over him no matter how big his little kingdom was, it was still under the reign and rule of Jesus. And that made him angry. And he hated it. So it's anger. That's the first one. The ruled. He's ruled by desire. Let me give you the second one. Look at what it says in verse 3 again. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Okay, now he was troubled in a different way than Jerusalem with him. Notice what it says. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now again, you've got to remember, this caravan of, of magi who roll up really make the people kind of nervous, because it sounds like, hey, there's mutiny happening here. There's, there's some, somebody trying to go for the throne, and you know what happens when that happens. When, when ha- so the second is, it's fearfully indifferent, and it's scared but still, scared but still. Now, everyone... I hope everyone is aware, that when mutiny is heard, where there's a change of power, that means that heads are going to roll. That means that war is coming. Seeing the Magi rolling in meant, hey, Herod's going to start killing people. And that's exactly what that ends up happening. But the people were so upset because they, real, they realized mutiny was coming. And what they show us is a fearfully indifferent people that saw, hey, I didn't want to get mixed up in this whole Messiah, kingship kind of debate here, so we're just going to hang back. Notice, notice who doesn't go over to Bethlehem. All of them heard, hey, why they came. They, they came because there's a the new king born. But none of them makes the five-mile journey to see how legitimate the claim is. And the reality we need to see from these people in Jerusalem is that we can become so focused on our lives and keeping things the way they've always been that we actually miss the king of kings. Matthew makes a point that all Jerusalem was upset with Herod. And I love what um, um, Daniel, um, I'm forgetting his last name, Doriani says about this. He says, it was not because most of the people would have been sorry to see Herod replaced or because they would have been reluctant to see the coming of, coming of King Messiah, but because they well knew that any question like the Magi's would result in more cruelty from the ailing Herod, whose paranoia had led him to murder his favorite wife and two sons. Basically, their response shows us what happens to people who are fearful of judgment. Well, what, ha- what, happens if, what happens if we receive Jesus? Well, People aren't going to like us anymore, so we'll just, we'll just kind of keep him over there. And th- their response is really a lack of a response. So that's the, fir- that's the second one. Let me give you the third one. It's the apathetic. Apathetic. And I would actually argue this is the one that we need to be more concerned of here in this gathering. And it's knowledge without love. Knowledge without love. When Herod felt a, th- a threat to his throne, he concluded, hey, let me bring the chief priest in. This is what they say and he assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now the chief priests and the people and the scribes, that's two groups of people that hated each other. Okay, The, the chief priests and the scribes didn't like each other. But when the king calls you and he says, hey, come in and tell me where this is at, you put your differences aside and you come and you answer him. Now the answer they come up with is, Listen to what they say. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. These guys get it right. These guys get it right where Messiah is born. But do you notice who goes to Bethlehem? Do they go to Bethlehem? They just told him the right answer. Do they go to Bethlehem? Do they make the five-mile journey to Bethlehem to see, hey, we've, we even got the, we even get, the scholars got it right. These sages from a foreign land have brought news of the Messiah but they don't even even get up and ride their donkey to to Bethlehem or walk to Bethlehem. Probably out of arrogance thinking, how could these Gentiles come and tell us the kings here? How dare they? How dare they come and, and tell us that Messiah is here? So why is this? Why is this? Doriani, again, I think he's very helpful here. He says, formal knowledge of Scripture does not in itself lead to knowing who Jesus is. Just as God sovereignly worked through Caesar's decree that a census be taken to ensure Jesus' birth in Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy, so God sovereignly used the Magi's calculation to bring about this situation. And he goes on and he says, people with knowledge and education are always tempted to rest content in knowledge, but it is never enough to know the truth. If we truly know, we act. If we know who Jesus is, we worship Him. And this is, this, brothers and sisters, this is a large concern for me and you and all of us. Any Anybody who knows Scripture in any capacity, this is a, this is a huge warning banner. That apathy, or, or this, this non-concern, is, is a huge warning for us. I want you to get, notice another place in Scripture where Jesus says, says this to them. He says, um, again, now this is him talking to the religious leaders. He says, Then some of the scribes, this is Matthew 12, and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he says to them, Only a wicked and an adulterous generation sees a sign. But notice what he tells them, like we read this morning. Matthew twelve forty two says this, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And he's basically saying, the queen of Sheba, which we see in 1 Kings, that came all the way from the south to see the wonder and the wisdom of Solomon, she came all that way. He's saying, she's gonna rise up at the end and condemn you all. Not, not, not you all, but to the scribes and the Pharisees, because she came all that way, they weren't even willing to make the five mile journey. They weren't even willing to make the five mile journey because she recognized what they didn't. She recognized Messiah was here. And that always means that a response is required. So apathy, this knowledge without love is a huge concern for us. And I want to give you a very, something very simple to, to unify all three of these responses. So the ruled by desire, the fearfully indifferent, and the uh, apathetic. And it's what, the thing that unifies each of them is simply is a refusal to behold beauty. It's a refusal to look at the beauty of Christ. The ruling desires hates the beauty of Christ and desires its own beauty. The fearfully indifferent would rather have little bits of beauty instead of true and lasting beauty. And the apathetic think they already understand beauty. And they miss the point. All three miss the point entirely. That beauty is to be beheld. That beauty is to be beheld and worshipped in that sense. And all three miss the point. Now notice what, what happens then. So that's the concern Let's move on to the plan. So notice what Herod's plan is, then, verse seven and eight. So it's the plan. It's to destroy the true king. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, "Go and search diligently for the child, and when you' found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship." So I want you to see the false king's plan. The false king's plan. And his plan is simply destroy life at all costs. Herod's plan was to destroy anyone who tried to take his throne. He's willing to lie, cheat, steal, kill, to keep what he thinks he controls. And this text is just comparing for us. This is how the false king responds, but I want you to notice what the true king's plan is the true king's plan. And it's life for all people. The fact that these magi show up and are the first to worship Christ should reveal to all of us that worship of Christ is not just for a certain people. Worship of Christ is for all people. It's for everyone. Not to quote, again, Micah five two, like we read this morning, but you, O Bethlehem, apaphratha, apaphratha who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The one who's coming forth, which is the Lord Jesus, is the one who's from ancient of days. Or as Ezekiel 34 says, 34 through 23 and 24, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Matthew is trying to show us that salvation is not just for the Jewish people, but through Christ, salvation has been opened for all people. It's been opened for all people. I want you to notice, jump down um, we're going to finish, finish out what the true response is, what the, what the right response should be. And the wise men hardly knew anything of Jesus, but they knew that God had placed a sign in the sky to follow. The wise men probably weren't even sure what Jesus had come to do, but they believed what was revealed to them. So we see the response. We'll end with this, the response. It's worship the right response it's worship. And he says, jump down to verse 9 and 10, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So I want us to look at how does the proper response to seeing the star and to seeing Christ, what is that supposed to look like? And I would say it's twofold. The first is true worship is joy filled. True worship is joy filled. The same word for worship can also be translated to pay homage, which is a form of honoring the king. And these men saw the sign in the heavens declared to them, and they responded. Now, worship, I've said this before worship is simply our response to who God is and what He has done. And these men take the final five mile stretch that none of the other three people did. All three, I want you to notice this, all four parties were fully aware of what was the reality. The king was aware. The, the scribes and Pharisees were aware, all the people were aware. Not one of them make the five mile journey to Bethlehem, to the sea, is this true? Only one of the group takes the five mile journey, which is not far, in, especially in the ancient world. For you, you might be like, well, five miles, I wouldn't walk that far. It's like, five miles is not a far journey in, this, in the ancient world. But the people, these men, though, didn't have a full orb theology, Despite their limited knowledge, the wise men came. And with the apathy, the Jewish leaders, and the hostility of Herod's court, all of them had the Scriptures to inform them, and only one of them went. I love, again, what Doriani says. He says, the Magi were pagans serving a pagan king. Yet God spoke to them, for for that is what he does. Christianity is not a religion for good people. It is for sinners who listens when God calls. This is, this is tantamount to the Christian faith. Christianity is not for good people. Christianity is for people who are really weak and who are really insignificant and who are really needy and who come when God calls. And I want you to see, if you're taking notes, this, this last element at the very top of your page. Jesus is the true king. Therefore, worship him. And true worship will be joy-filled and will cost you everything. We say it again. Jesus is the true king. Therefore, worship him. True worship will be joy-filled and will cost you everything. Now, notice what they go on to do. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. Their gifts were costly. Their gifts probably, probably were a lot of their life savings. But they came and they said, doesn't matter. Here's the one one who's worth it. And they show us that true worship is costly. So not only is true worship joy-filled, but true worship is costly. The worship of these magis, magi reveal to us that true worship costs something. I love, again, what Jesus says in another place. Luke fourteen twenty five through 26 He says, Now great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life he cannot be my disciple. I want you to hear those words again for the, for the severity that they are. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, now, he's not saying to actually hate your father and mother and everyone and yourself. He's saying, if you don't love me more than you love all the rest of these other things, you can't be my disciple. And this should, this should put us back a second <laughs> He's saying that if you, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, in comparison, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Don't think that what the wise men gave was more costly than what Christ is calling you to give up. We could probably actually in this room scrape together some gold and frankincense and myrrh we could probably even scrape together a lot of money and give to Jesus. But what Christ is calling us for is actually more expensive than all of that. He's calling us to give up even our own life for him. To, to actually not try to build our own kingdom, but build his kingdom, is way more costly than anything. Or Look, look down in verse 33 of chapter 14. He says this. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I don't want you to miss this, friend. The worship that Christ is demanding of his followers is far more costly than what what we typically think it is. It's far more costly. Or look look at another place, Matthew thirteen forty four, like we've been talking about in Sunday school. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. You know why he goes in his joy and sells all that he has to buy that field? Because that field is precious. Because that field is more worth it than everything he owns. And he doesn't go and begrudgingly say, well, i got to buy this field. I know it's really expensive. There's a lot of beauty to it, but man, that's that's a whole big... No, no. he goes in his joy and sells all that he has and gives it to buy that field. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being at the Grand Canyon. Uh, But when you go to the Grand Canyon, there's not like signs that go up to the Grand Canyon that say, make sure you stand in awe. Or make sure you stand and wonder at the Grand Canyon. Or, or make sure you gasp when you see what you're seeing. No. Beholding the Grand Canyon makes you just stand there and go, wow, I didn't, I, this is amazing. There's not signs that tell you this is how you're supposed to respond to Jesus when we come to, when we come to, to gather with God's people. Jesus is the true king, therefore worship him. And when you see him, when you behold him, you will do it. There wasn't a sign outside of Mary and Joseph's house that said, hey, when you come in, this is how you worship him. The star was there, God had spoken, and they came in and they did it. And their worship was joy-filled and their worship was costly. And brothers and sisters, Christ is calling us to the same thing. Christ is calling us to the same kind of joy-filled, everything-on-the-table kind of worship. Jesus is the true king, therefore worship him. And true worship will be joy-filled, and it will cost you everything. And we're going to turn, and we're going to take communion. Uh, And communion, what we're celebrating is, communion is not a drab and and somber time. Communion is a celebration. That When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is that we've done what the Magi have done. We're doing what the Magi are doing with true worship that's joy-filled and costly. We're saying we've given up everything. We've given up everything and we're clinging by faith to the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to read us a passage just real quick just as a, as a... A warning. Uh, I will encourage the children as well. If, if you're a child and you're sitting here, just let communion pass. Uh, if you're not a member, if you're not, um, um, yeah, if you if you haven't been baptized, just let it pass. Let it pass in that way. I want to let you let you hear a, a warning from Scripture. He says, "Whoever therefore eats the bread or drink or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord." Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The, the unworthy nature of communion is not you saying, well, let me search hard enough to see I've gotten rid of all the sin in my life. The unworthy nature of communion is to say, are you clinging by faith to the Lord Jesus? Are you clinging like the, like the Magi are? In, in a joy-filled, everything-on-the-table kind of worship. Now, I want to ask the deacons if, uh, yeah, Tony, Norman, do you want to come up too? Norman and Tony, if you guys want to come up, and uh, we'll pass the elements.